I'm Betty Salonik, CEO and founder of Accelerate Investors. Welcome to our podcast, Chief Investment Officer Conversations, which brings to you what is on top of mind for the world's leading CIOs. In our conversations, we will explore their background, their current investment strategies, and their global outlook. In part two of my interview with Marcus Frampton, CIO of Alaska Permanent Fund Corporation, he shares with us how APF, which is in a natural resource-rich state, thinks about incorporating ESG principles into its investment portfolio, how APF thinks about diversifying from its oil exposure, and what aspect concerns him the most about the COVID-19 crisis. Hope you enjoy. I'm curious, how do you view oil in your portfolio? Do you have additional exposure? How do you think of diversifying your oil exposure and even hedging that risk for APF? Sure. So we manage money against a benchmark that our board establishes for us. Um, Our benchmarks, generally speaking, are the -the off-the-shelf uh, benchmarks. So public equities were benchmarked against the MSCI World Index. Most of our bond portfolios benchmarked against uh, the U.S. I was about to say the Lehman aggregate, but then it became the Barclays and now the Bloomberg ag. And those do have energy in them. So, uh, and, you know, every, every week that goes by, it's a smaller percent because they reconstitute. And I think energy stocks are now three or 4% of the, the, the index. So, um, because that's our benchmark, we hold generally that weight, um, unless we have a view that we want to be underweight. The, you raise a good point, and people have pointed out we're an oil state, you know, maybe we shouldn't own oil stocks just from a diversification standpoint. And I think that there's some argument for it. If there were a bigger percent of the index, we might look harder at it. But for us, at 3 or 4%, we leave it in there. That's not to say that we're not aware of and looking at the trends in that industry. And if you look, for example, at our infrastructure portfolio, it's about 20-25% renewables. Um, So in the portfolios where we take a little bit more tracking error versus our benchmark, like infrastructure, we're definitely emphasizing renewables and other areas and probably have a little bit less oil and gas infrastructure than maybe our peers do. And then I think the second part of your question was hedging. You know, I've looked at that from time to time, and it's really more of a question for our Department of Revenue because they're the ones that take oil in, and I know they've looked at hedging. One of the problems is at scale, the oil hedging market's not that deep. I think Mexico's the only big sovereign that hedges their crude price exposure you know, the big integrated oil companies like Exxon and Chevron have addressed their oil exposure more by getting into downstream and refining and things like that. The real small public companies do tend to hedge, but I think only a year or two out. So in an environment like this, I don't think hedging really shelters you because you can't at any meaningful size, get a a hedge out 10, 15 years. And so you'd be rolling hedges at worse and worse prices right now. So the state runs unhedged, and the price of oil has severely impacted the budget here. And so it hasn't flowed through to our investment portfolio, but there certainly is an argument that, that someone should look at that. 
diving further into this, Alaska depends on mining and energy production for 15.3% of all state economic output. APF provides payment of dividends to Alaskans and supports government services. And one of its goals is to ease the dependency on revenue from minerals. You are CIO during a critical time in the history of APF. Per APF's analysis, the budget break-even price for oil, which is the average annual price for a barrel of oil required to balance the budget, is about $40. And on Tuesday, the U.S. crude oil futures, for example, fell to $11.57 a barrel. What does this mean for APF and how it will support Alaskans in today's crisis, but for also for the future? Yeah, I think the, so. The the if you look at the impact of oil and gas on the economy here, so include the direct impact, which I think is the number you quoted, and then you know secondary um, businesses that provide services or or one degree separated from oil and gas is probably. Uh, you know, over 50% would be my guess. And when you look at the the state budget, historically, it was funded 90 plus percent from oil royalties. Mm-hmm. And so really 2016 was when the the state here had a budget impact from, at that point, oil got down under 30 a barrel. And the legislature and the governor at the time revise the approach to working with the fund. So historically, we just paid dividends to people that lived here. And that was a, was and continues to be a great program. It, it really, you know, the average Alaskan feels very invested in the fund and what we do. And that dividend program adds a, a great deal of responsibility to me. I, I take it very seriously how important we are to people that live here. And it's only gotten more important in 2016. They They changed the the way the fund works, and we now do a percent of market value, so roughly 5% of the fund per year gets transferred to the legislature, which is then spent on dividends and actually, and then also some government programs funding for the state. So if you look at the upcoming fiscal year, even before the crash in oil in the last few weeks, that um, POMV transfer was 75% of the funding of the state. And so the state, from a fiscal standpoint, is now actually much more reliant on the permanent fund and on financial markets than crude oil alone. And the limit of of how far it can go is zero, which I always would have thought is an extreme statement, but no longer is, to have oil go to zero. Right. And so in that extreme case, you know, we'd either have to make up that difference through more POMV payments or budget cuts, but it's not the same reliance that the state had when I joined eight years ago, which was 100% on oil royalties. I now like to cover ESG and your emerging manager program. Sure. APF is in the state of Alaska, which is rich in natural resources. How do you think of incorporating ESG principles into your investments? Yeah, so... The approach we've taken to ESG is not to take a divestment approach. It's been to try and be a positive catalyst in the areas that we invest. So I talked about some of the biotech investments we've made that I really believe have advanced science and treatment for people who previously didn't have medical options. So we're trying to make a positive impact. You know, I mentioned some of our renewables investments in the infrastructure portfolio. We've been very active there. And then 
when you look at the sectors that some investors have divested, we haven't taken that approach. But in any company we invest in, it's as a long-term investor, it's incredibly important to us to see where they'll be 20 years from now. So even though we don't have a prohibition on investing in coal companies, it's hard to make an investment in a coal company or an oil and gas company that's not thinking about evolving for the future um, from a long-term perspective. So a lot of what we do is a qualitative approach, not a checklist approach, and it requires judgment and it requires trust from our stakeholders that we're investing appropriately. And so that's kind of how we approach ESG. It's become pretty politicized, particularly in Alaska. A, a number of the big banks, so most recently Citibank, um, and then earlier J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs announced that they wouldn't finance um, energy exploration in the Arctic. That I look at as kind of a checklist approach. So, like, we're not going to do it in the Arctic. So, without the qualitative analysis of what's being done to mitigate environmental damage. And those banks are quite active financing oil and gas elsewhere, uh, including fracking and other things that that I'm not going to say are worse for the environment. I'm just going to say require a more nuanced approach than excluding certain categories. And And so that's it probably sounds a little vague, but that really is how we approach it, is, is by exercising judgment and making a qualitative assessment of how well-positioned companies are for the long term and whether they're, they're approaching their businesses with a mind to long-term shareholder value. And that you can either be good or bad at assessing that on a subjective basis. And, you know, we've got a history here where we've built trust with our stakeholders that that they trust that we're assessing that uh, well. What aspect of the COVID-19 crisis concerns you the most and why? I would, I would describe the current environment as, as, as probably the highest level of uncertainty I've seen in my career. So on one hand, you've got unemployment numbers and, and job loss numbers that are just staggering. And the economic pain that people are feeling is, is probably unprecedented in the post-depression Era, and then on the flip side, you've got unprecedented action by the uh, Treasury and the Federal Reserve, and I think they learned from the financial crisis that it's smart to go big and to move fast, and so they did that, which is appropriate and good. I think the problem is that big programs that are put together very fast often have unintended consequences and aren't fully thought through. So I've heard some concerning anecdotes about who the recipients of some of the federal aid was, about whether it's really trickling down to the people that need it, or is it bigger companies that have the right bank relationships. So that's concerning to me. And I I think that talking to you today, the markets bounced back pretty good from the depths of March and I think a lot of it is is faith in these government programs. But I think that we could have a volatile road going forward, and I'm very concerned about whether that help is getting to the right people. And then beyond that, it's kind of a state-by-state response. I mean, we're fortunate here in Alaska. We actually have the lowest COVID count in the country. And I think our governor and, and his staff have done a tremendous job. They've 
we we closed the the state down um, a re- not far after New York did when we had only a handful of cases, and it's, it's really helped out. And, mm. and so I think that that how this crisis plays out will be kind of a state by state thing. I think there are probably some examples of states where people are moving a little recklessly forward. I think at times people have had concerns about some of the the presidential press conferences. I heard a a uh, clip from yesterday that was describing some medical treatments that that I don't think uh, reading Dr. Fauci's body language he he necessarily agreed with. Like so much of the response is is government driven that that uh, I like it that it's big, but it's. Uh, you know, I still have some concern about how it'll trickle down. Speaking about your concern about if the right people will get that help, I read in the journal about Axios CEO issuing a letter to its managers who take fees that it would be looked poorly at them if they did take help. I'm curious, what are your thoughts? And might that be a future due diligence question? Have you received PPP help? I, I appreciated Axia taking leadership on that issue, and and in short, we would not be uh, we would not be pleased to learn about you know managers of ours just taking bailout money because they technically qualify on the basis of the number of employees. And I mean, I've heard anecdotes about that happening. I'm not sure at, at this point where it sits, but if it would certainly be a due diligence question in the future. Thanks for sharing that. I'm curious, what predictions do you have on how our world will permanently change due to COVID-19? For example, how do you think it will impact how investments are made by institutional investors? Well, my hope is that it won't change the world much. My hope is that it, and I think some experts believe that ultimately the coronaviruses or COVID will be similar to the flu and there'll be a, an annual vaccine, and at some point we'll have you know herd immunity. So I think that this event is not without precedent. I mean, I think early episodes of the flu were similar, where humans didn't have hadn't been exposed to it, and and so it resulted in a, a tough environment like this. But um, so I would hope that that we'll get into the summer, and there'll be breakthroughs on the medical side, and we'll get through it, and we'll restart the economy. The Concern is there's just so much uncertainty. There are, um, you know, I read a paper from some Harvard researchers that suggested that social distancing and some element of reduced activity will be in place through 2022. And I think a lot of the experts have said it'll take 12 to 18 months to come up with a vaccine and then you have to mass produce it. So when you start getting in down that road, you can come up with some pretty dire circumstances for the impact on markets and on the economy. And um, I think you, I would just sum it up as it's uncertain. Like we can't, you know, we could come out of this soon or it could be a devastating 18-month episode in human history. I think that one interview that I really liked listening to was Ray Dalio. He was on TED Talks a couple weeks ago. And, and the the headlines out of that interview were all about uh, that Ray Dalio of Bridgewater is predicting uh, depression, and he did predict it, but he also talked a lot about you know how we can 
best navigate this and come out the other end. And so markets go through cycles and economies go through cycles and we have to accept that. And the important thing, um, you know, paraphrasing Ray right now is that we don't cut the things that are most important just because budgets are small. So they've got to keep funding mm-hmm. education. They've got to get computers to students so that they can continue learning and they have to make sure that it's in all communities, not just wealthy communities. And, and I think, you know, that stuff's important. And I'm again paraphrasing Ray Dalio, but, but that innovation is, is the strongest force in, in humankind. And so we face adversity and we come out of it and we innovate and we reinvent. And so I don't know how COVID will change things. I hope not a lot, but I'm confident that five or 10 years from now we'll be out of it and in a better place. And now it's time for our CIO to CIO question. This is from Rodrigo Garcia, who's the CIO of Illinois State Treasurer. He asked the following, how does Alaska Permanent Fund build a pipeline of young, talented, diverse recruits to join its ranks in order to promote long-term business continuity and diversity, equity, and inclusion? That's a great question. It was, you know, recruiting is a big challenge. We've had a tight labor market the last couple of years. And in the case of the permanent fund, generally we're recruiting investment personnel um, outside of Alaska. And so when we have an open position, first of all, to get an open position, it's about a year cycle because you have to get it into the legislative budget. It has to be approved. Um, and then we start recruiting. And we've, I've always felt like I wanted to run an operation that has, you know, meritocracy above all. And because of our circumstance where it's kind of a needle in a haystack of finding someone who's qualified, who the mission of the firm appeals to them, who's willing to move to Alaska. We don't have offices outside of Juneau at this point. You really narrow things down based on that screening. And so you're forced to just focus on the merits of the candidate, you know, whereas if we were in New York recruiting, you know, you might have dozens of resumes for a certain position and you would need to, or you might want or need to screen on different characteristics. For us, it's just who can we get up here who knows what they're doing, who is a good person, who likes the mission of what we're doing. And that's resulted in, you know, a fabulous level of diversity on our team. So I have five investment directors that report to me, uh, two of them are women, our CFO is a woman, our CEO is a woman. We have on my team people, someone that was born in Senegal, someone that was born in Pakistan, someone that was born in Argentina. And I think that our uh, investment team here is a is just a great advertisement for uh, merit-based hiring, that when you do that, you tend to get a team that's very diverse. Whereas like I said, if you have dozens and dozens of resumes coming in, the biases or prejudices of the people screening the resumes may come into more play than when you're forced to, you know, pick from a smaller set of people that are self-selecting to want to come work with you. And so I'm I'm really pleased with the team that we have. And recruiting's been a challenge, but it it we're we've always been able to find that that uh, diamond in the rough or, you know, that one person that ha- feels some connection to our mission that wants to come up here. i now like to ask you a, a few personal questions. What is a book you would recommend to our listeners? 
Well, in serious books, I would say David Swenson, Pioneering Portfolio Management. Is, you know, David is the CIO of Yale Endowment and widely respected in the industry. And his book, Pioneering Portfolio Management, is kind of goes soup to nuts on how they manage money at Yale, and they've been very successful. and And so that's a great book for for people to get started in our industry on. Unfortunately, or fortunately, my hobby is my profession of investing. So I don't have a fun book for you. It's it's basically this, and then you know Ben Graham securities analysis. If if you make it through David Swenson and want to step up to a six hundred page tome written in nineteen twenty two, you can do Ben Graham securities analysis. All right, thank you. What's your favorite story or moment of experiencing cultural diversity? Yeah, I mean, we're, I mean, I talked about the great team that we have here, and and so it's been great working with those, with everyone, and you know, we have our uh, potlucks from time to time, and and our colleagues from all the different places I mentioned bring bring some great dishes uh, that that we all enjoy. So it, it it's been good for for those social things, and it's also good for investing. The the um, portfolio is very global at the permanent fund, and increasingly we're looking to do things first through fund managers in different parts of the world, and then increasingly co-investing and direct investing. And to have the diverse team we have, it, it just helps in terms of you know evaluating opportunities and bringing their skill set and knowledge base to bear on on different investments in different places around the world. What money advice would you give to younger generations? Yeah, I mean, start investing in equities early. The market um, has given people a better entry point right now, and 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 when you're young, you can take that that risk. So uh, I wish I had saved more in my twenties and invested more in the stock market. But that, that would be my top advice. And then also just to invest in good books and and to develop your career. So investing in stocks and investing in yourself are the are the way to go when you're younger. You, you talked about that you love to focus on investing even on your free time. And for example, I know that you participate in an angel investing group in Alaska, and now you have a newsletter dedicated to microcap and over-the-counter stocks. I'm curious, what advice would you give younger generations who are interested in becoming investors? I think it's to find a, a niche of investing that you're that you're passionate about and, and and fascinated by, and then to become an expert in it. I mean, the investing world's so broad, you know, from uh, I am active in an angel investing group in the state, and that's a completely different type of investing from getting active in the stock market and buying stocks, but a lot of fun, and you see a lot, and you socialize, and you get to meet people. So I think a young person that finds an angel investing group in their community is a great great way to spend some time. I also am, like you mentioned, uh, a fan of, of OTC stocks and microcaps, and and I got involved in a couple companies and actually joined their board of directors. And that's been a terrific experience for me, and I've learned a lot through it. And I've focused in on that area in part because these are very small companies and not something that that the permanent fund would invest in. So, so angel investing and over-the-counter stock investing um, provides you know outlets for me to get involved in other forms of investing that we don't necessarily do at the permanent fund. Lastly, what is the best advice you've ever received or advice that you would impart to others? 
That's a good question. I, you know, I think that people have to be willing to be audacious in what they want to go after. And so I'm a very young CIO. I'm 40 years old. I, I was 39 when I got this job. And I, I, you know, when I applied and threw my hat in the ring, I was not 100% confident that I would be considered or that people would take my application seriously. And fortunately, they did. And that's played out throughout my career. I think people should be willing to apply for things that maybe are a little outside their reach and maybe they'll get it. Maybe they're mistaken. It's not outside their reach, but I've certainly been rejected from my fair share of colleges I applied to and jobs I applied to. And, you know, it, it takes a little perseverance and, and, and just sticking to self-confidence. And, but I, the advice I'd give a younger person is to apply for things that you think maybe are a little outside your reach. Thank you for that. And thank you so much for your time today and also for agreeing to be a speaker at our Accelerate Investors Annual Conference, which is currently postponed. So thank you again for your time. We really appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Betty. I I really enjoyed this. I'm Betty Salonik, founder and CEO of Accelerate Investors, and you've been listening to CIO Conversations. You can follow Accelerate Investors on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Thank you for listening.